You're listening to the Ruby on Rails podcast. You're listening to episode 381, and I'm your co-host, Brittany Martin. And I'm your co-host, Gemma Isroff. Welcome back, Gemma. I hear you have some exciting news to share with us. I do. I do. Thanks for having me again. I have some very exciting news, which is I am going to be joining Shopify starting in late September. Well, congratulations. What team are you going to be joining? I'm going to be joining the Core Foundations team, which I think Nick actually a few episodes ago was talking about quite a few people who were on that team. I think he did a hack day project with a lot of people from there. This is why the Ruby community is so charming. It's so small, but so large that there is some sort of like, what was it? The Kevin Spacey six degrees of separation. <laughs> yeah. Oh, no, that was Kevin Bacon, Kevin wasn't it? Bacon. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But Spacey also has six degrees of separation, too, probably. Totally. So I'm so curious because, you know, you've been working a part time gig and you've been one of the co-organizers for WNB.RB. You've also been contributing content to Ruby Weekly, writing your own content. What was your mindset going into those interviews with Shopify? Were you interviewing at other places? Yeah, I was. Yeah, it's funny to hear a list of things I'm doing back at me. I had actually started by interviewing at a smaller company that kind of found me through Twitter and some of the work I had put out. And I kind of stumbled a little unintentionally into the interview process with them. And once that got serious, I applied to Shopify as well, because I had known for a while that if I was thinking about going back into full-time work, I wanted to consider Shopify. There are obviously so many folks I admire working at Shopify, and it seemed like it would be such a privilege to be able to learn from and work with them. I'm curious what the interview process was like for you, because I will link to the episode where Nick talked about getting hired at Shopify. But Nick got brought on kind of around when Shopify really opened up to remote workers. And Mm -hmm. now Shopify is kind of famous for, you know, what, bringing on 2021 developers this year. And so they've really committed hard to bringing remote. And so I'm curious how the interview process was for you. I enjoyed their interview process. They look at your resume, then go to a technical screener, which I I think is pretty standard at the moment. And then they do something I hadn't seen before, which is a life story interview, which is with someone from the recruiting team, like with the recruiter I had the whole way through, where they ask about your life story and things that got you to the place you're at. And then the next round is... Three more technical interviews, two are based on a problem that an interviewer has for you. And then one is asking you about a project you've worked on to discuss it and allow the interviewer to ask you questions about it. I have so many questions. First, I want to dig into that whole life story idea. So what does that mean? How far back do you have to go? And I know I just named off some of the things that you've been doing lately, but like, how weird is it to go back and just look at your life as an overall overarching story? Yeah, it was definitely something I hadn't seen before. And so I asked, I'm a big questions person. I asked exactly that question. I was like, do you want like, here's where I was born situation? Or do you want, here's when I first got interested? And my interviewer said, wherever you want to start. I started with an interest in math and science before I learned programming, which was kind of my whole life. And I zoomed through that and then slowed down a bit when I got to learning computer science and what parts of it interested me. But yeah, I was definitely reflecting a lot on that interview because it wasn't one I had seen before. And it was one where it felt a lot harder to gauge what someone might have been looking for, or what was useful information to them to give them a sense of who I was. 
I think it's an interesting play in order to find diversity amongst your employees because you might have shared some life experiences that nobody on the team has. And so that might lend well to the product. But I'm also curious, like, did you learn anything about yourself by like looking overall at your life story? And you're like, oh, okay, I can see where like I took this path and it led me here. Yeah, I think it's an interesting question because I think there are versions of that that you tell people as you're meeting them, right? There are versions as you make a new friend or acquaintance. There are versions of your life story or where did you get interested in, I don't know, education or what, Brittany, do you think makes you such a good question asker? All those things that you have discussed before. So it felt like stitching those together a little more so than new revelations. But I was also to your diversity point. I was thinking a lot about that and about the fact that I'm privileged in that I don't have any workplace trauma. But if I had that interview would have been really likely anxiety inducing and how that works. I don't know if you have thoughts there. That's so interesting. I also am lucky in the fact that I do not, but I could see that being a factor in having to go over your entire life story. So that's a, a really solid point. Right. Now, going into yeah. the technical aspect, you said that you had to present a project or at least talk about one. Is this one where you needed to have the source code so you could walk the interviewer through the actual code or were you just telling the story of the project? It was the story of the project. So I talked about something at a previous full-time job where I definitely don't have access to any of the code anymore. It was fun to do that. I enjoyed that. And it was interesting seeing what I remembered and what I didn't and the decisions we could kind of work through together live where I could just candidly say, like, I don't remember exactly what we considered, but here's thinking about it now, what I think we might've considered. I thought that was really fun. That's fantastic. Well, I am so excited for you and excited to have another co-host on the show that also works at Shopify (laughs) because I know both you and Nick are going to bring a lot of really cool stories to the show. Thanks. With Texas, with your new hires, what has that interview process looked like? So I think all the listeners know that our junior developers are doing well and really just absolutely amazing me. And so we've moved on to hiring three senior Rails developers that we've actually been working with Mirror Placement on. Mm. And I've started those interviews and they're going really well, which I'm thrilled because as we all know, the hiring market is tough right now, but I were talking to some really great candidates. Now, our lead architect, Paul Sadakis, he has asked that I very early on in the interview process, ask a couple questions for him because we do record these interviews and we want to be able to watch each other interview. That way you get a good grab of the candidate. I always ask permission, of course, at the top of the interview, but it is fascinating what you can learn from watching your coworkers interview as well, because I learn about them as well. (laughs) I did want to pose one of the questions to you just because I'm curious. Spoiler alert to anyone who might eventually be interviewing a text us. But very early on, we ask you. What does your development environment currently look like? What's the OS? What's the IDE? Like, what tools are you currently using? I use a MacBook. So my OS is Mac, IDE, and environment. I am a big Vim and Tmux power user. It's kind of what I code on what my setup looks like. How did you get into Vim? I think my first tech internship, I was paired with a mentor and my mentor used Vim. And he was like, this is one of those things you'll thank me later. I know it's going to be a real pain now. And I kind of I remember the whole summer being like, I don't know any of these key bindings. It's taking me so long. And now I really am so grateful 
Because I think with many tools, BIM especially, there's a little bit of a learning curve before it feels really familiar. And so I'm grateful that early on he pushed me to stick through that learning curve. I haven't made the commitment yet. I'm currently working on a MacBook, though I think the listeners know from years ago that I was stuck on a Windows machine at one point. And while I made it work, I prefer to be on a MacBook if possible. I currently use RubyMine. I use iTerm, oh my Z shell. And I'm, mm. I'm currently happy with my setup. I do wish at some point I could carve the time to learn them because I know it is so powerful and it makes you move pretty quick. How do you like the Z shell? I am a colorful person, Gemma. I've got tattoos going up and down my arms. I have been known to have very colorful hair, colorful nails. A strong lip is part of my arsenal. And so I enjoy seeing those colors and I enjoy these settings that I have available to me. It does ask me to update quite a bit, but I am such a type A person that I don't mind being an updater constantly (laughs) just to make sure I have the latest and greatest. Yeah, I I use that too, but I feel like I haven't taken the time to really learn its nuances or niches. I just kind of use it out of the box. This episode of the Ruby on Rails podcast is brought to you by Honey Badger. Honey Badger is one of the easiest decisions you can make. As an engineering lead on a tech stack that supports a UI, API, mobile application, and Chrome extension, it is awesome to have all of my error monitoring, uptime monitoring, and check-in monitoring in one place. No matter how great your team is, your code is going to have errors. Honey Badger empowers your whole team to own the features they ship. Honey Badger sends you alerts real time with all the context needed to see what's causing the error and where it's hiding so you can quickly fix it and get on with your day. The included uptime and cron monitoring also lets you know when your external services are having issues or your background jobs go missing or silently fail. Head over to honeybadger.io and discover how Honey Badger is used by tens of thousands of pragmatic developers and companies of all sizes who want to focus on shipping great, error-free products. I got lucky very early on in my developer career. I was in San Francisco. I was one of the leads for Women Who Code Ruby. So, I mean, San Francisco had so many developers that not only did they have Women Who Code, but they actually had individual nights for individual languages. And one week we had a workshop where someone came in and helped us tune it. So my personal laptop, my oh my Z shell is very tuned and I haven't taken the time to translate that over. But it was such a good workshop idea because you walk away with something that's now yours. Anytime I open a new terminal, I'm like, oh, I did configure this thing. It's for me. It's like a craft for computers. I would love to see what it looks like. It is like a craft. It's like like beating bracelets or something. (laughs) It totally is, but it just keeps paying off. It's not ephemeral, which is pretty cool. So the sub part of that question then is, I think you've touched upon it, but what is the one tool that you're currently using that you could not live without? Just one is hard. BIM, obviously, but another big one, yeah, is Tmux, probably. Or actually, another interesting area to go into is for debugging, IRB. It's, I'm a big IRB user. And I asked this question yesterday on Twitter around what debugging tools people like the most. And it the thread got way bigger than I was anticipating. People are, are quite opinionated on their debuggers, it seems. What was the result? A lot of... People were sharing tips or things that others didn't know, which really fascinated me. There wasn't, as far as I could tell, a clear like winner between Pry, Bybug, Puts, IRB. 
but there were definitely a lot of like, oh, I love this command in Pry or I don't know, being able to CD into objects in Pry or use binding.irb and other people saying like, I didn't even know that existed and I've been using this tool for so long. I'm one of those stubborn people that learned Pry very early on and I love Pry. And no matter how many times someone tells me that Bybug and IRB can do the same thing, I have not moved over. And I'm at the point where I'm like, why isn't Pry just part of Rails core? But that's silly when literally the other tools do the same thing. I just need to actually make the effort to move over. I always think it's interesting that people are so opinionated about tools. Like my thing has always been, this works for me. I know it wouldn't work for everyone. It works well for me. And that's like, I'm trying to learn it for these reasons. And I think things that came up like on a thread like that, or like everyone needs to use this tool. And I disagree pretty strongly with that idea. Like if Pry works for you, I feel like that's great for you. I totally agree. And I think there's no shortage of debugging needed. And so if there are many tools that do that job, I think there's space for all of them and there's no reason to get up in arms about it. Oh, completely. And I think it makes them all better, right? That it's like an ecosystem with many possible things people could use. I agree. I feel the same way about IDEs. I would say the tool that is indispensable to me at this point is RubyMine. I really Mm. love having a code specific editor. I've tried it with VS Code. I've tried it with Sublime, Atom, you name it. Just nothing has been able to deliver as much value to me as RubyMine has. What features do you like on there? I really like the ability to jump to definition very quickly. I haven't been able to replicate that in other editors. So if I'm looking at a piece of code and it's executing some method and I have no idea where that method is coming from, I love the ability to right click and then just jump to definition. Or the flip side, if I'm looking at you know a class and I want to see where it's being used, I can right click and go to usage and see like a very handy list of all the places it's being used. I can jump to the test by just right clicking and going to the test. And I also like the fact that I can, this is a big theme of right clicking, apparently, (laughs) I can (laughs) annotate everything with the git commit so I can see line by line without having to go into GitHub who did what. But I have a feeling you have these available to you in Vim as well. I usually grep for that. And that workflow works pretty well for me, but I don't have any Vim plugins that I use to do the grep. So if anyone listening has advice on things to use there, I'm all ears. Do you have any specific Ruby Vim plugins that you use? I do have some fun ones. I have a plugin. I I don't know the name offhand, but a plugin that does like the end statements and things like that for me. That's pretty easy. I have a RuboCop plugin that I find really helpful. I think those are the two big Ruby specific ones. We take RuboCop pretty seriously at Textus. I mean, we have like the rules and every time they update, we evaluate whether or not the rule is something that we want to bring in and how breaking it's going to be for our code base. I'd be in a lot of trouble if I didn't run across RuboCop across my diffs before I committed them, just because the way that our GitHub actions are set up, the pull request is not mergeable if you're failing RuboCop. Yeah, and so that important. I think that's really smart that you have a RuboCop plugin going. Yeah, for sure. This is a minor one, but I have a Vim styled so that the 80 character column is just a bright red for me. I kind of know when I'm getting in most of the code I write 80 characters is or past 80 characters is when you switch to a new line. So I can like see visually when I'm getting there. I find that really helpful, but it's pretty minor. 
offline, you're going to have to show me how you did that because I need that for my commit messages because I'm not supposed to go, I think, past 80 characters when I'm doing commit messages in Vim, which I do use Vim for my commit messages. Mm. So I'm curious how you've set that up. So I'm definitely going to be pinging you in the WRB.RB yeah. Slack for some <laughs> tips. <laughs> I'm happy to show you. So on the flip side, Gemma, is there any tools that you wish that you could change? Is there anything that you feel is cumbersome or you wish you could automate at this point? Yeah, this is a really interesting question because I feel like in all of the cases where I can think that's true, it's likely I just haven't done the work to learn the tool well enough yet, or at least that's how I view it. I don't know. I think usage for pretty much any tool can plateau at a certain point, like even thinking about, I don't know, my typing speed. Like I don't make that many mistakes when I type. And so I can probably be trying to type faster right now. My typing speed has just likely been the same for the past decade and I'm not pushing myself there. And it's just because I, yeah, it's plateaued at a certain point. So I think there are a lot of tools for which I can think of my usage as having plateaued or I haven't invested the time. A hardware one, I guess. I wish laptops were better in arbitrary outdoor spaces. I wish I could just go to the park and have unlimited battery and the screen not be dimmed by the sun and that kind of thing, I would say. But that's not a tool specific thing. How about you? That is such a good comment. So first of all, I'm about to show my age. Did you ever take typing class in high school? I took it a little earlier than high school in primary school outside of the U.S. I don't even know if they had these in the U.S., but on AlphaSmart, there was like a little typing thing. I don't know. Do you know what that is in AlphaSmart? No, I have no idea what an AlphaSmart is. <laughs> I've never actually looked up if they had this in the US or it had a screen that was maybe could fit like two lines of text on it. And it was basically just like a keyboard with that two line of text screen up top. And you could like type on it and it had all these typing games. And at my primary school, they had a few of them and we would all just like learn how to type on those. You learned in high school? I did learn in high school. It was like this very aggressive program where we would sit down for a half hour and take these typing tests. And it would just show you a virtual keyboard on the screen as you were typing. And it would just highlight in red every time you made a mistake. So it was like very anxiety (laughs) inducing. (laughs) It was effective. But I always think to myself, like, wow, I should really take some time and just like invest in typing because you're right. Like it definitely slows me down that I'm not the fastest typist. And I know that I'm probably more mouse heavy than most developers, but Mm -hmm. I think that's probably because a developer was my second career. Yeah, completely. And I think it's definitely one of those skills that the earlier you learn, it's likely like more ingrained in your fingers and head how to do it. This episode of the Ruby on Rails podcast is brought to you by Scout APM. Scout APM is leading edge application performance monitoring that is designed to help Rails developers quickly find and fix performance issues. All this without having to deal with the headache or overhead of enterprise platform feature bloat. With developer-centric UI and tracing logic that ties bottlenecks to source code, you can quickly pinpoint and resolve performance issues. These include N plus one queries, slow database queries, memory bloat, and more. Scout's real-time alerting and weekly digest emails let you rest easy knowing that Scout's on watch and resolving performance issues before your customers ever see them. Scout has also launched its new error monitoring feature add-on for Ruby applications. Now you can connect your error reporting and application monitoring data on one platform. 
see for yourself why developers worldwide call Scout their best friend and try their error monitoring and APM free for 14 days, no credit card needed. And as an added bonus for Ruby on Rails listeners, Scout will donate $5 to the open source project of your choice when you deploy. Learn more at scoutapm.com slash Ruby on Rails. Now for me, I would say the tool that I'm currently dissatisfied with, but it's my own fault, is anytime I have the ability to interact with a CLI, I typically tend to choose the UI. So a good example is AWS. Say I need to clear CloudFront, I need to run an invalidation because we need to bust cache. I'm typically going to log into AWS and run that wildcard invalidation. And really, in theory, I should get the AWS CLI installed on my machine. It's probably one command that I can probably do an alias to and then be able to run that command. And so it's almost like taking that time and saying, this part is really cumbersome and annoying. Why am I not just sitting down and automating it? Because once you automate it, it feels so good. It's yeah. just finding the time and like really like investing in those workflows. Yeah. Someone once gave me the advice that like things like that should always be the user feels the pain of not doing them. So like at a certain point, you just get frustrated enough doing it manually that you learn to automate. But in general, I actually I feel like there's a bit of a thing of like people preferring CLIs over GUIs and also being a little like aggressive about that preference. And I, I there's so many times where the GUI works well. And if it works well for people, like, I don't think there's a strong need to go CLI well, hot take GUI you unless could... it is an automatable thing. Yeah. I was going to say, well, hot take. I, I imagine you've been in the AWS console and it's not a great GUI. So <laughs> I'm inflicting that pain on myself. <laughs> yeah, no, AWS is such a huge world. I always get lost when I try. I actually think they do it on purpose because if they made it too easy, then you would feel empowered to like move a bunch of things around and probably do a lot of destructive actions that they don't want you to do. So they're like, we're going to make this UI as confusing <laughs> as possible. So that way if you log in and you're like, I don't know what's happening here. You log on out. <laughs> That's fair. But I recently found on my credit card statement, I was being billed for something by AWS I wasn't using. And it took me so long to even find the thing to stop it. I was like, I don't know where this is. I can just see the charge. Like, what is going on here? Can I take a guess that you had to flip through all the regions looking for that source running? Oh, right? yeah. Co yes, completely. And I could see it on I the billing that. profile. Oh, it was, and I had too many AWS accounts. It was really, there was a lot going on in there. Random AWS charges are very relatable content, I think, for all of our <laughs> listeners, because I think it's happened to all of us where an, an exciting new thing has come out of AWS. We want to try it out. Yeah, exactly. We get maybe some credits to try it. We're like, cool, let's do this. Oh, I think I've shut it down. Yep. Let me log out. And then like three months later, you're like, oh, I have a charge. Yep, completely. Periodic reminder to check your credit card bill for any outstanding AWS charges. I think that's a great reminder. So one last topic that I know that you wanted to discuss before we wrapped up today is I know that WNB.RB is currently looking for sponsorship. And I thought we could have a discussion overall about locating sponsorship within the community and what that might look like and how sponsorship might not necessarily be monetary, but like offering resources so that you can either help your blog, your community or your podcast grow. So I'm curious, what is WNB.RB currently doing? Thanks for asking and for talking about this. I'm also excited to hear about how you think about sponsorship. But we have 
a few sponsors for a few different things we do. So for each meetup where we have two technical speakers, we pay them each $50. So we have $100 per meetup sponsorship offering. And then we have one-off events. So a mirror placement has been our sponsor for most of those meetups. And then one-off events like the panel we hosted on technical speaking, where we've gotten Shopify to sponsor that. And then we have contentful sponsors our Zoom account and does our Zoom recording. So we've kind of tried to share the love around like different offerings and what folks can sponsor specifically. But most of that has come inbound and not through direct soliciting. And so we're just starting to think about we want sponsors for future meetups and like for a few specific things, how to find those through soliciting sponsors. How do you find your sponsors? So our current sponsors on the show are ones that came over from 5x5 and have been like longtime supporters, though actually Honey Badger is relatively new to us. But both Scout and Honey Badger have been awesome when we have some new sponsors likely starting in the next couple quarters. But for me, Gemma, like I really try to think about are they offering services or is their desire to sponsor in line with what the audience is looking for or Mm. listening for? So in your case, you have this amazing community of developers that check a lot of boxes for diversity needs across a lot of these companies. And so in some ways, you have a resource that is super appealing, that is different than I would say most Ruby meetups out there. But you also have to be super cognizant of the idea that you don't want to make your attendees uncomfortable And you want to set like a very clear boundary because it's probably not services that you're after with for WNB.RB, but it's probably hiring. Am I right? Yeah, I think that's what we can offer to sponsors that we do have a lot of folks like we have a whole interview prep group where it's a bunch of folks actively looking for jobs. And so we have people who I know would be appreciative of the opportunity to talk or work directly with companies. And it would be incredible to be able to set them up with sponsors. What does sponsorship look like then for WNB.RB? For this podcast, of course, it's reading some ads and including them in the show notes. For WNB, is that getting to say some words during a meetup? Is it possibly like getting the ability to be in the Slack group and like post a message or you would post a message on their behalf? Or are you still trying to decide that out? We figured out some parts of that during the meetup. We give whoever's sponsoring the meetup a few minutes to talk about whatever they'd like. We have a jobs channel within our Slack group that people within the Slack group often post to and sponsors definitely post there. Those are a few of the things we've offered, but I think we're really looking to learn and to figure out how we can best service our members, I think is my priority and support whatever our members are looking for and how we can figure out with sponsors how to do that effectively feels really important to me. I love the fact that you want to compensate your speakers because it does take time in order to put those talks together. And I think it's important that we just don't see that as free work. And I love that you do that and you need sponsors in order to make that possible. But I agree with you that it should be a conversation with potential sponsors as to Hey, what have you done with other groups? What has worked well for you? What do you see sponsorship as? One I we always try to ask is why are you working with us? Like what are you looking for? And one we also think is really important is working with companies that are inclusive and are pushing for increased diversity. I think we would be hesitant to 
work with companies that have shown or have a track record of exclusive policies or not really promoting diversity within their workplaces because we wouldn't want our members in environments that are going to negatively affect them. Well, if any of our listeners are currently working with companies that might be interested in supporting WNB.RB, how can they reach out to you, Gemma? Yes, please, please do. You can find us on Twitter at WNB underscore RB. If you DM us there, we'll definitely see it. Or if you email us at womennonbinary.rb at gmail.com, we'll find it there. Or if you find me on Twitter or email or, or any of those places, we would really appreciate it. Well, find Gemma in all the places. And I think on that note, perfect time to wrap up. Gemma, thank you so much for coming back. And we're eager to get more updates from you as you start your new role at Shopify. Thank you. Thanks so much for having me again. This was fun as, as always. You've been listening to the Ruby on Rails podcast. Follow us on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, or wherever fine podcasts are downloaded to stay in the loop on Ruby on Rails and open source software. While you're at it, please leave us a review. And thank you for listening.